Church, Matt, for coming and leading us to the throne of grace through song. It's been great. It really has. And, and so make sure, you guys, when, uh, when the service is over, to show your appreciation to Matt. Go shake his hand. I, I, I can't even express how wonderful it's been. And uh, as I come and to, to minister the word, to, to just feel the presence of the Lord is such a great thing. Um, we got some work to do, so let's pray and let's get to it. Jesus, you are good. There's no end to your love. There's no limit to your grace and your mercy. You display it on the cross, and, and Jesus, you've been hinting at it from the beginning. God, we've seen it through Genesis, and we'll, we'll see it again this morning. So make clear to us, Lord, the truth of our redemption. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. And before we even read the text... I want to remind you of a couple weeks ago what we said about the, the life of Joseph, about the Joseph saga. You've probably already got these written down in your notes somewhere, but just in case you don't, we're going to throw it back up on the screen for you. Um, there are three purposes that we're going to be exploring in this Joseph saga, and really it's the three purposes of Genesis and of the whole Bible, all of life even. Consider that. Joseph's story points us to God. First and foremost, it tells us who God is. What is he like? How does he relate to his people? Why is he trustworthy? You, you talk to people who are skeptics and doubters, and, and perhaps some of you uh, in this room are you're not so sure about this, this church thing or this Christianity thing or even this God thing. How can we know there's a God? And so often our hearts want to turn to apologetics, and, and I love apologetics, but our hearts want to turn to um, signs and proofs and evidences um, that, that we can lay out in a, in a clear cut argument uh, for, for the truth of God, for the, the existence of God, um, and, and that, that's good and, 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 and interesting, but there's nothing more compelling when it comes to evidence for God than, than human history itself and the life of his people. Your life points to God. The life of Joseph points to God. And so as we see that, we ought to see God. But also we ought to see Jesus. Joseph's story points us to Jesus. It points us to the Redeemer. We're going to see exactly how, um, in just a few moments, it's the main thrust of this sermon. And pretty much every other sermon I've, I've ever preached, hopefully. Um, is that Jesus, Jesus is the great and glorious Joseph. He's our perfect Joseph. He's our eternal Joseph. 
our risen Joseph. He rescues us in spite of our hatred towards him. If you look at the story of Joseph and you don't see Jesus, you will come up with good moral truths. You will come up with great principles for how to live life, how to pursue success, how to flee temptation, how to respond when when people are mean to you, or even worse, when people hate and revile you. How to respond when you get in trouble for things that really you shouldn't get in trouble for. When you have an unreasonable boss, right? These are great life lessons that everyone could stand to learn. But if you only see that and you miss Jesus, you've missed it all completely. Why do I say that? Because Jesus is the only one who can make you new. Please do not for a second think that the main problem that you have is is the sum total of the choices that you make. And that if somehow you just make the right choices, like Joseph and like Abraham, except for those times, and Isaac, except for those times, and Moses and David, except for those times, if you just make better choices, that your life will be more fulfilled, you'll be closer to God. The the problem is not merely a collection of choices that you have or have not made. The problem is that you are dead. And sin. And the weird thing about this death is it's not like the zombie movies that that Hollywood loves so much. We've got another one that's just come out. And they just sort of vomit them out, you know, all the time. You can't, some people love them if you do, that's great. Some people are like me and just enough, right? Just enough with it. All right, how many times can you do this again? But they're not like those zombies that are sort of mindless, brainless, they walk, or maybe they run. But that's all they do. Like, you are dead, and yet you have the remarkable capacity to make choices that cause you to feel like you're alive. Now think about how terrible that is. Think about how deadly that is. That you can do enough good things that you can convince yourself you're all right. The problem is not the sum total of your choices. You can make incredible choices with a hard heart. The problem is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. Is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Slaves, as Romans tells us, to sin. So much so... That even your good deeds are done out of rebellion. Look at the story of the two lost sons. What does this have to do with Joseph? It'll come together. Look at the story of the two lost sons in Luke. The prodigal son as, as, as we more popularly know it. We've got a story of two sons who are rebelling against their, their dad. One son does it in the way that we think of as rebellion. He says, give me what's mine. You're dead to me. He goes, he lives it up. He goes to all the frat parties. He spends only for himself. He's all the things that we love to point to as open rebellion. Because we're all older brothers, or a lot of us are older brothers. And so we, we can point at those things, but then we sit at home and And it's it's just brilliant. One of the the best ways to disregard God is to just do what he says. 
right? It's, it's uh, Flannery O'Connor, Southern novelist, said that in, in her book, Wise Blood, about the main character, Hazel Motes, he had this keen understanding that the best way to ignore Jesus or the best way to have Jesus ignore him was to live a generally good life. That's right decisions, dead heart. We need Jesus. That's why every story has to point us to Jesus. Every story has to lead our hearts to one of two places. Well, actually, one and then the second place. First, just utter despair that we cannot, we cannot be what God demands of us. And then utter joy when we realize that Christ has and that Christ is. So when we look at Joseph, we more rightly identify with the brothers who thought they were going to get one up on him. Whether we're like Reuben, the older brother, who thinks, we'll just put him in a hole so that I can get him out and please my father in that way, right? Or whether we're like Judah, who's thinking, hey, we can make some money off of this. Let's sell him. Or whether we're like the other brothers, just murderous and intent. Let's kill him. Let's get this done with. That's who we are. And yet, Joseph, pointing us to Jesus, forgives them. Saves them. So we have to remember that. The story of Joseph points us to Jesus. Finally, it points us to ourselves. Look, it's so easy, especially for someone like me. I'm very systematics type guy. I, I love that. So it's easy for me to get caught up in a system and to harp on a system to the point that it's unfair. It's not really balanced in how I do it. And so for me, it's, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And I, and I forget to say, but, 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 once you've met Jesus and once this reality and this truth has manifested its, itself in you, you must live holy lives. That's not legalism, that's right belief. And so we look at the righteousness of Joseph and we say, God requires and is pleased with righteousness in our lives. And so we ought. We ought to live like Joseph to a lesser extent, to Jesus like to the greater extent. Like Paul tells the Corinthians, look, if anyone's in Christ... He will walk like him. So Joseph's story points us to ourselves. So that's the first thing I want to remind us of. I want to also, um, before we jump right into the story of Joseph, I I want to remind us of the promises of God. I want to, to set this in its place because it's very easy to, to sort of divorce Joseph's story from the rest of Genesis because it is a great story and it it makes you know a great Broadway show or a great kids cartoon like we can set it apart as its own it's got the complete arc but it falls into a into a specific narrative context and that context is covenant And so let's remind ourselves of covenant just a bit. Um, First, let's look at what God says to Abram in Genesis 12. 
right? And so if you look at Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3, what we see is that God makes a promise to Abram. I will make of you a great nation, right? And I will bless your name and make it great. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I'll curse. And on top of that, he says, through you, the entire world will be blessed, right? And that's the one we, we like to remember. That's, that's our clear memory. What did Abraham, what did God promise Abraham? Well, that in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. It's Father Abraham had many sons and so on and so forth. There's another one. There's actually a more formal covenant even that God makes with Abraham. And it's in chapter 15. And, and so listen to this. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. That doesn't sound as great. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But, but... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Now, at a glance, we know historically that this is talking about their time in Egypt, right? And that God will, we see that fulfilled in Egypt, but in a redemptive historical sense, this is talking about us, God's people right now as we sojourn in a land that's not ours, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, we're elect exiles of the dispersion, so we're not in our homes. We're eagerly awaiting, uh, as Romans 8 tells us, we're eagerly awaiting with the earth the the revealing of the sons and daughters of, of God. We're, we're awaiting that final fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, where God will bring his people back into his land. He'll bring them home. So we are the afflicted sojourners. And we await that time when God will bring us out of our affliction to sin and death powers of the air, forces of darkness, and bring us home into great possession. And there's a hymn that I love, I love, I love, how rich a treasure we possess, and what? In Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the fullness of our possession. It's Jesus. With Jesus, comes a lot of great things. But those are only great because of Jesus. Jesus is our hope. He's the object of our hope. He's the assurance of our hope. He's the fulfillment of this in one sense. And like we said in another sense, we see that fulfillment when God uses Moses to free his people How do they get there? How do they get there? Right? At this point, Abram, he's about to go to the land. In Genesis 15, he's actually kind of there. So there has to be this series of events that occur to even make this a possibility. Now, this is a blessing. <laughs> this is God blessing 
Abram, Abraham at this point. How did they get there? Well, that's where the story of Joseph fits in redemptive historical context. How do they get there? Well, look at this story. We've got first the dream of Joseph, and we talked about that two weeks ago. And what do his brothers do in response? They plot to kill him. They don't kill him. Instead, they do one better. They, they sell him to, to Ishmaelite men into slavery. So here we go, starting in verse 1 of chapter 39. Here we are. Actually, you know what? If you would stand with me as we read this text. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went to the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment In her hand, and had fled out of the house, she called to the man of her household and said to them, See, he is he is brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story saying the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him 
This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. And you can be seated. I want you guys to go back you know, with your eyes and your mind to the very first verse, the the first few verses, actually. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about a principle of of reading Scripture. Um, Part of what we want to do on Sunday mornings is just magnify Jesus. We preach Jesus. And part of what we want to do is to provide you with an approach to Scripture that will help you magnify Jesus in your lives, in your quiet times, in your times of reflection. And a lot of times when we approach narrative texts, when we approach stories like this, we tend to confuse causality with simply just an account given. We, we tend to take ands and thens and make them if-thens. And so one of the places where we're tempted to do this in verse 2 is in verse 2 of, of Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And that's why the, the verses, the points that bookend this story are so important. Because it's very easy for us to say, if the Lord is with us, like in verse 2, if the Lord is with us, then we will become successful men and women. And now the standard of success given here is that everything that Joseph touches, it, it goes well. This man is rich because of Joseph, which if you remember that first promise of God that we heard to Abram this morning, makes sense. Because God said, look, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to bless the nations through you. That finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, but it finds little fulfillment even here. We're going to see in in a few chapters, in in a few more scenes in this story, that the entire known world is blessed through Joseph. He's He's a shadow of the fulfillment that is coming. However, however, the presence of the Lord with us does not always equal Great circumstances. 
Hopefully this is obvious even in verse 2 because he was a successful man, but he was in the house of his Egyptian master that he ended up in because his brothers threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery, right? Not, not great circumstances. He's probably unsure of where and how far away from his family he is. These are not great circumstances, but the Lord is with him. And I want to say this to you, especially for those of you who are in places right now in your life that are dark. Family member is sick. You're you're depressed. Christians feel depression. I need you to hear that. Pastors, great theologians, experience depression. Christians are to be joyful, but in no way should a season of depression cause you to doubt your standing with Jesus. Because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. But if you are in that season now of depression, if you're in a season where your family is falling apart. If you're in a season where you've just lost someone you love, where your job fell through again, that is not a sign of the Lord's absence in your life. And in the same way that the Lord was with Joseph in the pit, with the Ishmaelite slave traders, and from the very beginning, in the house of a slave master in Egypt, the Lord is with you in your hurting. He's with you. And here's the thing. To be in that season with the Lord, it's hard to see it in the middle of it. But to be in that season with the Lord is to be desired more greatly than to have everything that your heart could have imagined and the Lord not be with you. Brothers and sisters, God is with you. And the Lord will, he's promised, he will turn your mourning to gladness. Joy is coming. Do not lose hope. Hold fast to the Lord. And and so do you see, do you see even here why it's so important not to, to switch those, not to make, God is telling a story. Because it goes like this for Joseph doesn't mean it's gonna go like this for you. Because it goes the way it did for Job, in his righteousness, doesn't mean it's going to go like that for you. God knows who you are, and he loves you, and he knows his design for your life. And if you are his, he is with you. So do not despair, right? How many times do you hear that? Are there any commands repeated more than don't be afraid or don't despair? Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
The Lord is with you like he was with Joseph. And it manifests itself differently in different places. For Joseph, for this sake, it looked like success in everything he did. And he rose to this position of greatness in the house of his master. What he says to, to, to Potiphar's wife is nothing short of unfathomable. Not even Potiphar is greater than me in this house. We don't have a context for that in the United States because of our historical understanding of slavery. That would never happen. But it did. Why? Because the Lord was with Joseph. Does that mean that if the Lord is with you, it's going to happen for you? I feel like I'm beating a dead horse a bit. But, but we need this to sink in, Christians, because we, we need joy in times of hurt. So we need to remember that. The answer is no. God was with him in the pit. God was with him at the height of success with Potiphar. God was with him in prison. So the question is, why does this happen to Joseph? Why, if the Lord is with him, this roller coaster? Why, if the Lord is with you and me, why this roller coaster? How many of you feel that in your Christian walk? How many of you feel that? It's so discouraging, the ups and the downs of the Christian life. You know, one day, man, sin comes back. I'm just ready to Chuck Norris, roundhouse kick the sin down. Temptation has nothing. Right? And then the next day, all I can do is sin. I don't even remember being tempted, but all of a sudden, here I am sinning. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to pray. I don't really want to come to church. I kind of do because there's social capital involved. But other than that, I don't really want to be here. How do we, how do we weather that? Well, God is with you. Why do you feel that? Right? In our minds, okay, I've accepted Jesus. There should be this steady incline to glory. Well, I want to say one thing from the life of Joseph, and then I just want to, uh, total aside, that, that maybe will in- encourage you some more. Um, from the life of Joseph, remember that God promised Abraham in Genesis 15 that his people would be exiles in a foreign land. They'd be sojourners in a land that wasn't theirs. They'd be slaves to masters that weren't their true master, God, and that he would deliver them. And in that descent and deliverance would come the fullness of blessing. So, Joseph is here because God is good and he keeps his promises. Why are you in the place you are? Because God is good and he keeps, he keeps his promises. God will bring you out of whatever place you're in. He keeps his promises. But let me just say this, because um, with Joseph, the circumstances are really not of his own doing. He doesn't really do anything. It doesn't matter how annoying of a brother you are. You don't deserve to be thrown in a pit and sold into slavery. Um, and, you know, he's, he's righteous. God calls him righteous. And, and so he doesn't really deserve, in our understanding, to, to be lied against um, by, by Potiphar's wife and thrown in 
to, to jail. And so in some sense, we can say, well, it's not his fault. But in my life, in my walk with God, these things are my fault. I am the cause of this. And that's a good place to be when you recognize that, that it's not their fault. It, it's, it's my fault. How do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know? Uh, let me just, just say this about measuring Christian growth. And um, a man named Alan Hirsch said it a couple years ago. Um, and, and I just found it so helpful. You, you know when somebody says something, you just kind of uh, you exhale and there's like the way. Um, he said that uh, the Christian life looks sort of like this ups and downs. And a lot of times, the way we try and measure success is if we're, um, if our highs are higher than they've ever been, or if we don't have the down, especially that, like the less we have downs or whatever, that's how we judge success. What he said is, something that might be more helpful for you is to judge growth in this way. Are the downs that you are currently experiencing Better than, higher than, there's more light at the end of the tunnel than, a little bit more hope than the last down. And so that's hard to see in the course of a month or two months, but what about a year or a decade, right? Christianity is a long haul type thing. And we are fast food type people. So we're not going to measure growth that way. But if you've been a believer for a decade, think about your lows now versus 10 years ago. Has God given you better perspective? Are they different? Is it it the same intensity of low? Is it the same hopelessness? Look, it's easy to make that even a legalist form of judging where you are. But hopefully for some of you that's helpful. Carrying on, because we do have to get to what we talk about in this story all the time. Um, And and so we move on in the story. So we see why Joseph is here. Why can we say that Joseph is righteous and admirable in this story? Well, because of the main plot. What happens? Potiphar's wife makes an advance at Joseph, actually multiple advances, continual advances at Joseph. And Joseph resists temptation to the point of leaving his cloak. Of leaving his cloak. And so that makes for a great illustration, right? Like flee temptation. Flee temptation. Leave your cloak if you have to. Joseph doesn't hang around and try and reason with temptation. He just bolts, right? And that's true and that's good. And Flee temptation. There are so many verses in the New Testament especially telling us to flee temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Don't mess with it, flee from it. Right? 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11, but you, man of God, flee from all of this. Flee from all of it. And what, what's all of this? Well, the earlier part was that there are some people who... Uh, view godliness as a a means of gain and essentially it's just talking about false teaching and being caught up in false teaching. You, man of God, flee false teaching. Flee it. 
So we see that flee temptation, flee, go. And it's easy to sit on that, but consider this. Joseph had to be tempted. For his family to be saved, and for his brothers, and specifically Judah, who's the one that the promise goes through, but for the promise to go on, Joseph has to be tempted by Potiphar's wife, and he has to resist temptation. And it's in the resisting of temptation that he finds, not reward, like, oh, good, you've passed the test. Here you are. Brothers, come, bow down to Joseph. No, he finds jail. His obedience leads him to the point of jail. Does that sound in any way familiar? What was the first thing that happens to Jesus after the Spirit descends on him after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Joseph would not have been able to save his people had he not been tempted. In the same way, and so much more, Jesus would not be fit to be our Savior had he, like Joseph, not been tempted and come out sinless and resisted. And what is the reward for, at least at first, the reward for Jesus' obedience? It's the cross. Joseph points us to Jesus. Joseph's resistance of temptation reminds us of the fact that we have a Savior who was tempted in every way as we were and yet was without sin. And that's our hope. In fact, that's our only hope. And so now what happens on this side of the cross? We see that, we hear that, we're forced to confront that and We either believe or we don't. And so when we believe, we receive the Spirit of God. And now here's the the beautiful thing about this is as soon as the Spirit of God is in us, we are able to fight temptation. So we have to start with that. We have to start with Jesus and then come to this fight temptation. I'm not saying don't fight temptation and just say, hey, Jesus did it. Jesus fought temptation perfectly. I'm saved. I'm saying remember that first when you're in the midst of temptation because it will give you renewed strength and power to fight temptation. So how do we fight it? How do we get a little bit more practical? I didn't read all of 1 Timothy 6.11. But in 1 Timothy 6.11... Paul tells Timothy, you man of God, flee from false teaching, flee from all of these things. He he just lists a whole bunch of um, um, bad things. Flee from them. But he doesn't stop there. He says, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Turn, Turn really quickly to Ephesians 4. It's not on the screen, so you're going to have to flip in your Bible, old school. Wow. Okay, so here we are. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 
And starting in verse 25, Paul is talking about what it looks like to live a new life. In verses 17 through 24, Paul says, it's about Jesus. Return to the gospel that you believed about Jesus. About the life he lived, the death he died, the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his dwelling in you. Now live this renewed life. And listen to how Paul says it. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth in love with his neighbor. All right, so stop sinning, resist sin, but don't simply do that. Put something in its place. So, put away falsehood, speak the truth with your neighbor, for we are members one of another. Number 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? So, stop acting out of anger, but instead, make reconciliation. Resist temptation, but pursue righteousness. It's both. Some of us, we just think, I'm just going to resist temptation, resist temptation. But we're not doing anything. Right? I'm not going to turn on the computer. I'm not going to browse on on certain websites. What are you doing? Instead of just, you're thinking, I'm just going to sit here with all my self-control. and I'm going to sit here in this place of temptation instead of, leaving that place and going and being productive. You can't leave that empty space because you end up right where you were. You are not that strong. God doesn't expect you to be. And so Paul keeps going, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands. Do you see? Let no corrupt talk, no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up. 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. It's not merely fleeing. It's also doing. And it's why God tasks us with mission. It's why he tells us how to live. And all of, all of us, no matter what context we have, we have things that God has called us to. If you have a job, your job, your, your task is to work that job as unto the Lord, faithfully, so that even if it's not monetarily, so that you are a blessing to the people that you work with. If you're a father or a husband, you have a job. You have a duty that God has tasked you with to be a loving father, husband. So you have this ability now to to put away selfishness and to live selflessly. If if you're a wife or mother, it's it's the same thing. If you're a member of the church, you have the opportunity to stop thinking so highly of yourself, right? Philippians 2 and this is the one I have to wake up and look at. Don't think so highly of yourself. It's so easy when you read a lot and your theology puffs up as fast as anything I know. So you have to remind yourself of what you're actually studying. What you're studying says that you are a sinner saved by grace. 
like, like the person in the majority nation who can't even read and doesn't have any idea who Calvin or Edwards is. Right? You have roles. And how often in your, your life do you find that the places where you most give in to sin are the places where you are least fulfilling the roles that God has given you? Even this one, the role of rest. How often? And I'll talk to men here more specifically, although the, the truth may be the same for women. How often? Does your succumbing to temptation coincide with the fact that you're not sleeping, but you're tired, you're weary, you're resisting the responsibility of rest? And I'm, just, I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. You have not rested, and so you are angry. You've not left work at work, and so you take it out on your kids, your family. You become a workaholic because you're resisting what God has given you that is good. It's rest. And what is all of this? It's saying, God, I don't trust you to be with me. Resist temptation. Pursue righteousness. They go hand in hand. So this story ends with Joseph in jail again. And I just said, you know, let... Let us not think too highly of ourselves as we ought. And quoting Philippians 2, Joseph's story so adequately points us to Jesus' story, which is just Philippians 2. Think about the whole of Joseph's story and the whole of Jesus' story. And, and, and listen to this. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus fulfilled the righteousness of God. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our hope. Our hope is that the story of Joseph is just a mere glimpse of a better, truer story of Jesus. Our righteousness our forgiving brother, our salvation. Let's pray. God, it's only when we've found our hope in Jesus and that we give up our lives that, that you give us life, that you fill us with your spirit. And I am grateful that you don't say, clean up your act and then come. But you say, come to me and I'll give you my righteousness. And so as people who've been given the righteousness of Christ, as people
who've received that hope, that blessing, that reward in Jesus. May we live faithful and obedient lives out of gratitude and responsibility because you love us. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. For the benediction, please. Please, I'm just very, I was very moved by the sermon today, and those are very good words for us to learn from the life of Joseph. I want to continue some of Sean's thinking just a little bit more from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then a little further on, uh, Paul quotes the Old Testament, speaking about resisting temptation and doing what is right. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Go in peace this week. Do likewise.